after going through the first three chapters of the book of Genesis so far, and I hope you've, you know, enjoyed kind of thinking about those first three chapters and everything that's there. Isn't there so much truth for us there and so many incredible things that we need to know about for life uh, today? But at this point, you know, we've dealt with a lot of major themes. We've learned about, just in review, things about God, about creation, about humanity, about the devil, and of course, as we saw last week, uh, about our fall as a species into sin. And here at this point, when we turn to Genesis chapter 4, mankind has been banished now from the Garden of Eden, and death is the curse that they or we uh, were found to be under. So in layman's terms, things were bad, (laughs) okay? So... In the midst of all that, though, we have to remember that there was this undertone of hope that existed. Remember, if you look back in your Bibles to verse 15 of chapter 3, the portion of the curse where God said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The idea that God was communicating is that the day would come when one of Eve's descendants would win the ultimate victory over Satan. Now, when they heard that promise, they could not have possibly imagined all we know that that promise would become, that God the Son would become a man, would live and die and rise from the grave to give us life. They could not have possibly envisioned a story that beautiful. But still, they had hope in their hearts that one day a descendant of Eve would come who would be their deliverer and win the victory. And in the text that we're going to look at tonight, in chapter 4 and following, we're going to see these immediate descendants of Adam and Eve. And the question that they are asking that's implied throughout this whole text is, who will deliver us? By faith, the people who came before Jesus, uh, people like these in the Old Testament era, were to believe that the Deliverer would come. But for us who are living now, today, after Jesus has come and died on the cross and rose from the grave, we're to believe that the Deliverer has come and that his name is Jesus. But at this point, they're still wondering, who will be the Deliverer? So let's start out in chapter 4 and read uh, verse 1 and 2. It says, Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. Okay, here in in, uh, the first verse, in verse 1, we learn that Adam knew Eve. That's the way the Bible describes it. It's a way of it's a Bible's, the Bible's way of saying that they knew one another in the act of sex. And I want to think about this just for a second as an aside, because I think it's instructive concerning sex in general. You see, to God, sex isn't the mere collision of bodies who are out for a good time. Instead, though it's clear because of the design of our sexual organs that God designed sex to be intensely pleasurable, he always thought of it as a major expression of intimate relationship. That's why he uses the word know here for Adam and Eve. They knew 
one another. In other words, a married couple was to or is to know one another. It's really only in societies like ours that devalue or misunderstand the body, believing the true self is only the soul or my feelings or my heart, that we would mistreat the body in in such cavalier ways to, to think of connecting with anybody physically like it's no big deal. No, God knows that you are your soul and you are your spirit, but you are also your body. And sex connects you to another person in a powerful way. This is how Adam, in the relationship of sex, knew Eve. Okay, but that's not the point of the passage, so I'm going to be done talking about that right now and move on to talk about the, the fact that they had offspring. The, the, the verses don't say that these were their only children, you know, Cain and Abel. The implication is that Adam and Eve lived a very long period of time and had many sons and daughters during the the duration of their lives. And their their very long lifespans, which we'll see in chapter 5, combined with their healthy bloodlines, they had just been created after all, would have enabled them to develop a fairly large population on earth in a pretty quick period of time. Two of their children, however, are mentioned here. The first one is Cain, who's born first, and then Abel. Okay, Cain was, the, like I said, the firstborn, and Eve seems to ho- have hoped that he would be the deliverer that had been promised in chapter 3. That's why she said in verse 1, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. God had promised her a descendant to win victory over the serpent, and now it seems like Eve hoped that Cain would fulfill that promise. Now, if you've read the book of Genesis before, you know that Cain did not fulfill that promise. So spoiler alert for you. But Eve did not know at the moment of his birth, and she had that hope. Okay? But the account details, first of all, their professional life. Okay? Cain, it says in verse 2, was a worker of the ground, so he was a farmer. Uh, this detail paints him as one of those people who has to deal with a very direct result of the curse. Remember in chapter 3, the ground was cursed. Here is Cain working with the ground. Abel, on the other hand, was a keeper of sheep. Okay, so he's a rancher. So it says in verse 3, in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. I love that description. Has that ever happened to you, where you're so angry, something changes on your face. Your face falls. That was Cain. Okay, what this tells us here in this little paragraph is that both sons, uh, at, at some point, it says, in the course of time, they brought the Lord their offerings. Cain brings the fruit of the ground. Abel brings the firstborn of his flock. The fact that God rejected Cain's sacrifice but had regard for Abel and his offering has set Bible students on a wild goose chase to try to figure out uh, why God rejected one and accepted the other. You know, was the animal sacrifice that Abel brought better than the produce sacrifice uh, that Cain brought? Was the firstborn uh, that was brought better than the quality of the fruit of the ground? Was, was Abel 
more personally invested in worship. Well, Cain was just kind of going through the motions. Okay, here's what I have to say about that. We should not go beyond what the Bible says, okay? And the Bible doesn't tell us, at least in this instance, uh, exactly why. Now, there are some implications later that I'll talk about from the book of Hebrews, but here, at least at the very first, there's silence about the defect of Cain's sacrifice and the quality of Abel's. Now, the text doesn't tell us uh, why God rejected it, and it also doesn't tell us how God had regard or no regard for these sacrifices. You know, because some people think that, okay, well, what happened was fire fell down and consumed one sacrifice and did not consume the other. Or some think that the smoke of Abel's sacrifice ascended up into heaven, but the smoke from Cain's sacrifice just sort of like wafted down onto the ground, like God was saying, I reject that sacrifice. Some people think that Abel's flocks flourished after he offered this sacrifice. But again, the, the text just doesn't say, but they understood, and, and, and Cain especially understood that his sacrifice had been rejected. But, but here's one thing that we do need to remember. The first recipients of this book were the ancient people of Israel who had come out of their slavery in Egypt. And when they read this book, they were hoping to learn about the God who had delivered them from their captivity. And when they inspected Cain and Abel's story, there are some things they would have learned about God. First of all, they would have seen from this story that even at the very beginning, that God was worthy of worship. That God was worthy of worship. There's no indication, there's no record of Adam and Eve teaching Cain and Abel about a sacrificial system or telling them how to worship God, but somehow these men had come to the conclusion that they needed to worship God. And this was important for ancient Israel to wrestle with because in short order, God was going to give them the requirements for the sacrificial system, which would be the form of worship on earth for many decades and centuries uh, here on earth. They would steward that sacrificial system and so it helped them learn that God was worthy of worship. And of course, we understand that today. God is worthy of our worship today. We don't have to offer sacrifices, uh, animal sacrifices, praise God. Uh, but on the other hand, I, there have been times in my life where the Lord has said, will you worship me by sacrificing this or that in your life? And I've just said, Lord, couldn't I just go get an animal or something and give that to you? be so much easier than some of the things you've asked me to do in life. But he is worthy of our worship. Another thing that they would have seen is that God must be approached by faith. God must be approached by faith. You see, the Bible doesn't talk really about why the substance of the sacrifice, wh whether the substance had anything to do with God receiving it or, 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 or rejecting it. In fact, the people of Israel, when they read this, they would have looked into their sacrificial system and they would have seen animal sacrifices and they also would have seen crop sacrifices. So for them, they likely would not have jumped to the conclusion one sacrifice is better than the other. They probably would have thought that there was something internally that was happening that made Cain's sacrifice repulsive in God's sight. And of course, as scripture unfolds, we discover that God wants to be approached by faith. So they might have surmised that Cain did not approach by faith. But fortunately, we don't have to guess. Because it says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4, that by faith, 
Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. The, the, the implication is that as they came to God, Abel was the one who had faith in his heart towards the Lord. Cain, more than likely, came to God expecting to be received because of his works rather than approaching God by faith. Okay, so this defunct position of Cain's heart, his lack of faith, it's evidenced in his response to God's rejection of his sacrifice. You know, God doesn't regard it, but notice how Cain responds. He doesn't say, God, you know, what happened? I'm, I, it breaks my heart that you didn't receive my sacrifice. What happened? Can you tell me what's wrong? Instead, he grew angry and his face fell. Rather than search his heart, he sulked. And this outward response, I think, betrays what was going on inside of this man. He wasn't a true lover of God who was approaching God by faith because if he had, like I said, he would have immediately begun looking for the reason that God rejected his sacrifice. There would have been humility. He would have said, God, why have you not received uh, my sacrifice? And he would have wanted to embrace the consequences for his actions. No, instead, his response is emblematic of so many people who mimic a pattern of religiosity only to pout when God does not give them their way. Their pouting is evidence of what has transpired in their hearts. There's no real longing for God. Their worship, if it can be called worship, is actually self-worship. Cain was there for himself that day to not give something to God, but to get something for the self. We have to watch out for the seeds of this Cain-like response inside all of us. Okay, in verse 6, it goes on, And the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, you will, not, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Okay? We're not told how this conversation happened, like how God spoke to Cain. That's not the focus. But instead, we're told what the Lord said to Cain. And he starts with this beautiful question. And you don't have to raise your hand, but how many of you have been asked this question by the Holy Spirit at some point in your life? Why are you so angry? <laughs> God asks this question to Jonah. He asks this question to Cain. And I've found that the Lord will often ask this question. Why are you so upset? What happened? But God then went on to tell Cain, a reverse of his heart was possible. There's, there's hope here from God. He tells Cain that sin is there at the door, crouching at the door is the way that God says it, and that it wants to come in and rule over Cain, but that Cain, verse 7, must rule over it. It, it. it seems that we're meant to understand a couple things. First, it seems that we should understand the decaying nature of, of sin. Let me tell you what I, what I mean by that, or let me explain what I mean by that. Remember when Satan tempted Eve just one chapter earlier? When Satan tempted Eve, he had to manipulate, deceive, and talk her into transgression. Now, just one generation later, here's Eve's son, and now it's not Satan speaking to Cain, but God speaking to Cain, and God is trying to talk him into righteousness, all right? So where Satan was trying to tempt Eve into wickedness, God now is just trying to talk her son into righteousness. He was imprisoned in sin. So I think we're supposed to see the decaying 
nature of sin, what it does to human beings. But it also seems that we're to see the workings of conscience as a gift from God. I'm not trying to say that when God spoke to Cain, what that was was his conscience in operation. God was actually speaking to him. That's what the Bible says. But I think that God's intervention here in Cain's life is something that God has done through conscience billions of times for billions of people throughout the course of human history. It might not be God's direct voice, but it's the echo of his voice in the conscience that he's embedded in human beings. And something within us tells us when sin is there that we should turn from its path and rule over its pull. Okay, so both of these truths, though, the decaying nature of sin and the tendency of man to ignore his conscience, they scream at us for the need of regeneration, right? They, they tell us we need someone to come and make us new because sin has brought this depravity or this decay upon us. And the, the text is only going to show us this decay growing more and more severe with each passing generation. Okay, let's read on in verse 8 and see what happens next. It says, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? And again, this is like the earlier passage in in, uh, chapter 3. It's not that God doesn't know. You know, it's not that God is in heaven going, I lost lost the GPS signal. You know, where where is Abel? No, God knows. He's giving this man a chance to repent of his sin. He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Okay, so so Cain has a chance. God confronts him. Why are you angry? Sin is there at the door. But he blows Cain right through God's intervention, and he kills Abel when they're out in the field together. His his heart was revealed perfectly with that infamous question, am I my brother's keeper? It's this attitude, one that denies any responsibility for the community, which leads to horrors like murder in the first place. When Cain placed himself first, you know, above his brother, more important in value than Abel, he became, I think, the father of all who, through greed or lust or violence or power or other means, exert their negative influence upon other people. But God did not mean for us to strive for control of others, but brotherly love. He should have loved his brother. He should have cared for his brother. And of course, the gospel brings this back for us as God's people. So God needed to here demonstrate the gravity of Cain's error, the terrible nature of murder. All throughout the Bible, murder is condemned as an especially egregious crime or sin. And so he's going to deal with this first murder in a very severe way. God knew about it. That's why he said in verse 10, the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And so God cursed Cain from the ground, it says in verse 11. He made the ground work uh, against Cain even more than just the general curse would have worked against him. 
So this guy would just struggle as a farmer his whole life. And he'd have to, as a result, likely wander from place to place, looking for new ground to plant crops, making him, verse 12, a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Okay, with all this, murder gained a standout position, like I said, among other sins mentioned in the Old Testament. When, when Israel received the, the law at Mount Sinai, uh, God actually instituted the death penalty for murder and for other crimes. But in a sense, that was really only an elaboration for the people of Israel of what God had announced in Genesis chapter 9 after the flood. And we'll get to that in a few weeks. But here in Cain's story, we begin to discover the way that God values human life. He says, you can't touch it that way. You can't take life. We are not to murder for selfish gain or out of bitter emotions like, like Cain did. Okay, so Cain responds to this. Okay? He said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Don't you just want to like roll your eyes at this guy at this point? Like, are you serious right now? The rest of the Bible is filled with like statements for Israel about capital punishment for what you just did. You know, and here you are, you're going to be banished and like work's going to be kind of difficult for you, you know, and you're saying it's greater than I can bear. He says, behold, you've driven me today away from the ground and from your face. I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain lest any who found him should attack him. All right, so fir first off, there's a couple things to say about this. First of all, Cain, he it appears like there's no remorse whatsoever. You know, no, no uh, apology, really. But still, God extends a little bit of mercy in his direction by protecting him from his supposed or imagined enemies. He says, people are going to want to kill me, and so God puts some kind of mark on him you know he thought other people would rise up and take the law into their own hands so God enabled some sort of protection for him saying if anyone kills Cain vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold okay this is mercy from God this is grace from God for Cain now nowhere in the Bible is the mark that God put on Cain described okay so if anybody ever tells you this is what the mark of Cain is they have no idea what they're talking about it's it's not mentioned at all in scripture we don't even actually know if it was visible. It might have even been invisible. It might not have been something natural. It might have been something supernatural. In other words, this guy could have just gone around living a totally normal life where nobody tried to kill him, but from heaven's vantage point, it was because God protected him. We just don't know. Uh, so that's all I have to say about that. Verse 16 goes on and it says, Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, um, Cain, when Cain built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. Okay, so Cain here, he departs from the presence of the Lord, it says in verse 16, a very sad statement. And he goes to a place in uh, towards the east, called Nod, east of Eden. He started growing a family there. He had a son named Enoch, and he actually built a city and named it after his son, Enoch. Not to be confused with the Enoch that we're going to read of in chapter 5, who walked with God. 
Okay, part, part of the story, though, brings up an inevitable question for a lot of people, and the question is this, where did Cain's wife come from? You ever heard that question? You know, where did Cain's wife come from? There's Adam, there's Eve, there's Cain, there's Abel, then there's a wife all of a sudden, and they start having babies. What's going on? Okay, <laughs> so all right, there's two possibilities. Uh, the first one I don't think is what happened, but the first possibility is that Adam and Eve, and I, I referenced this in a in our study in Genesis chapter 2, some people think this, some Christians think this, is that Adam and Eve were only one of the couples that God created. And as people began filling the earth, the various family members intermingled and began to marry, producing new families. Okay, I talked about this view when we looked at chapter 2 and some of the problems that are attached to it. The second view, though, is that the long lifespans of that time period allowed for Adam and Eve to have high numbers of children who would spread out and have their own children and high numbers of children themselves. Uh, that So much so that they might not have even known each other all that well, even just a few generations later. And then they'd begin to marry. And the assumption is that this would have had the same, uh, wouldn't have had the same drastic biological ramifications as it would today because of the purity of their bloodlines and all of that. Okay, this is awkward for us to think about because we have a hard time envisioning long lifespans for one, but we also have, we also still recognize that at some point, somebody knew it was their sister and they had a marriage together. Uh, and so that makes us feel awkward. Um, you know, but as time goes on in scripture, it becomes more and more clear this isn't something that we should practice today, but it might have just been the exception at that early stage and that they just really had no concept of it being something that would be uh, frowned upon and sinful uh, later on. The reason why I think this second view is better is because of uh, Paul's theology. Uh, Paul taught in Romans chapter 5 that sin entered the world through Adam and that we are all Adam's offspring. He's our federal head is kind of the way that we say it. And that Jesus, when he came and died on the cross, can become our new federal head or, or the, 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 the head of the family that we're now in if we place our faith and our trust in him. So if you start putting all these other people on earth at the same time of Adam, it just kind of mucks up that theological image that Paul developed. Notice also, though, how Cain established a city which he named after his son. He calls the city Enoch. And rather than spread out through the earth and subdue the earth, like God had said, he uh, builds a city. He wanted to huddle together with other people and build a society with other people. And the society described in this passage will be presented as one that uh, is far from God. But there they are, they're living and they're building on God's green earth. And this might shock the reader. You know, you see them kind of, they're not spreading out, they're not filling the earth and subduing it. Cain seems to be prospering, but this is an important lesson for the person that's approaching Scripture like we are tonight. There are times the wicked will flourish. Though in sin and though God's wrath was on him, Cain continued on and lived a seemingly normal life. This is not designed to demonstrate a lack of care or even leniency on God's part. Instead, it seems meant to place the focus on restoration of the broken relationship between God and man. You see, no matter how great Cain's life seemed, he was far from God. The, the basic and most important thing about him 
was off. He needed, even though he had a city and a family and all of that, God back in his life. Okay, Cain's hatred of Abel, though, will show up a thousand times in Scripture and a billion times in humanity's history, don't you think? You know, the murder of his actual brother. And here we are on earth and wars, rumors of wars, all of that. We see Cain's hatred for Abel appear a million times. And all throughout Scripture, the godly will be persecuted and attacked by the wicked. This is sort of the first instance of that. You have this godly man, Abel, being attacked because of jealousy and anger by a wicked man, Cain, who is supposed to be his brother. In other words, righteousness is the constant target of the enemy. And this was one of the things that God said would happen as a result of the fall. He said in Genesis 3.15, I put enmity between you and the woman. There's going to be this cosmic struggle and battle uh, that exists on earth. And we see in Cain and Abel, uh, and what we see in them will progress all through Scripture. Egypt will stifle Israel. The Canaanites will not surrender the land, but will attack Israel. Israel, Israel's wicked kings will attack Israel's righteous prophets. Herod will try to kill baby Jesus. Satan will think he wins when Jesus dies on the cross. And the world today is now against the church. What Cain did to Abel will continue all the way until Satan is thrown into the lake of fire at the end of the age. And the Israelites, as they read this, would see, oh man, if we want to live righteously before God, offer sacrifices to God, we better get ready for some of the persecution that will come. Now in verse 18, Enoch's line continues, uh, or, which is the continuation of Cain's line. It says, to Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other, Zillah. Okay, in the next chapter, chapter 5, uh, you might have even looked forward a little bit with your eyes and seen that it's just like a big genealogy, a list of all these people who died, and you're just super excited. You can't wait to get to that chapter. Okay. In that chapter, we're going to trace the descendants of Adam through another son he had after these guys named Seth. This is, though, uh, the line of Adam through Cain. And that's what we're looking at here. And the seventh from Adam, we'll see in chapter 5, is a really godly guy named Enoch. He walked with God. We're going to talk about him for a little bit. He's abundantly righteous. Here, the seventh from Adam through Cain though, is this guy named Lamech, and he's the opposite of abundantly righteous. Uh, what you see here is that he took two wives, Ada and Zillah, in verse 19. Okay, at this point, some of, some of you might be thinking to yourself, okay, this is, this is exactly what I thought I was going to find when we got into the Old Testament. I was going to find, you know, a misogynistic, out-of-date, you know, book that promotes just stuff that I can't abide by. But let me just say a couple words about that. First of all, polygamy, mentioned here uh, in the Bible for the first time, it actually is far less common in the Old Testament than people often suppose. For however many times I've heard somebody say, you know, that Old Testament, the Bible is just filled with all this polygamy. It's actually, I mean, it's there, but it's just not as common 
as people often uh, purport. Second, when polygamy is mentioned, it's painted in a negative light. Problems are attached to its practice. Lamech here is going to be portrayed as a sinner. Abraham's life, along with all of human history, was complicated as a result of his foray into a version of polygamy. The sons of Jacob, they hated each other quite often and mistreated each other partly because of polygamy. And life is often presented as harder for the polygamist all through the Old Testament. Okay, so you should think about that. But third, the Bible does not refrain from recording the faults of its character, even heroes of faith. And Lamech was not a hero of faith. Just get ready for that. Buckle your, put your seatbelt on, because this is what the Bible is going to show us, are the flaws of even its heroes. Because the Bible tells the truth about its characters, and it records that some good men gave in to the cultural norms of polygamy, even though it contradicted the law of God and the law of nature. Fourth, though, polygamy is an example, a good example of what progressive revelation of God's word does to human beings. What I mean by that is that as time has gone on, God's book has gotten bigger and bigger. God's revelation has gotten brighter and brighter. You know, like I mentioned earlier, we, you know, when they heard that promise, Genesis 3.15, that someone, a descendant would come to crush the head of Satan, it would have been hard for them to envision what we now know about Jesus and the cross of Christ. We have the full revelation. We have the total book. We've, we've got the whole thing. Revelation progressed over time. And progressive revelation is supposed to do really good things to human beings. In other words, the brighter the revelation from God, the better the person God's word shapes. So by the time you get to the New Testament, even though the Roman world practiced all kinds of romantic and sexual connections, God's people are expected to practice committed, loving, devoted, heterosexual monogamy, if they're to engage in a relationship at all. And this monogamous ideal is actually meant to bring us back to the Garden of Eden. This is what, like Paul said in Ephesians 5, verse 31. This is the ideal. He says, therefore, a man will leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And when you read that in Ephesians 5, you're supposed to say, hey, I've read that before. And that's because you saw it all the way back in the Garden of Eden when things were perfect there in Genesis chapter 2. Okay, so, so this guy, you see a marriage, and it's obviously not supposed, it's not what it was intended to be by God. Okay, I just wanted to talk for a second, though, tonight to those of you who have been hurt and disillusioned by broken marriages and relationships. Because I think a lot of people in these days, in these modern times, they just kind of a lost hope in what marriage could be. And it could be uh, through your own experience, in your own relationships. It could be through parents. I know Christina and I, we can, at least to a degree, we can relate. You know, we've got four sets of parents right now. You know, our biological parents all divorced for various reasons, and they all remarried. And I can just say it like this. It just doesn't make life simpler. It makes it more complex. Uh, and there have been times we've been very frustrated by the situation. But we have not allowed this to lead us to disillusionment regarding the institution of marriage. 
We don't think it's God's fault or what he's invented. We believe in it. God created it. But we also know that sin can disrupt God's good ways. That's what's happening to Lamech here. So Christina and I, we've sought to fight hard for our marriage and for sanctification. And by God's grace, we just rejoice in married life. It's, it's really good for those who are called to it, number one. But secondly, those who keep on pursuing sanctification in Jesus for the duration of their life. You know what I was looking for more than anything else when I wanted to be married and that desire began growing in my heart? It was, Lord, I want you to bring someone into my life that loves you more than they love me. That was the main thing. Somebody that loves you more than they love me. Because if they're putting their hope in a marriage, it's just not where it's at. But we've got to keep on growing to become more and more like Jesus. And 18 years later, I can proudly report that she is way more like Jesus than she was when she first married me. I have been a great sanctifying influence (laughs) on her life. (laughs) I have given her many trials and difficulties that she's had to bring to Jesus. (laughs) Okay, verse 20, Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents. So now we have a record here of Lamech's wives. So Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and harp. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was a forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was a girl named Naama. All right, so here you have Lamech's descendants through these two wives. And what, the, what Moses points out is that they began to develop various industries. Jabal initiated the spread of nomadic people who worked with livestock, growing and domesticating animals for human flourishing. That's why he was the, the one who dwelled in tents, worked with livestock. So this is not just mentioned as like just a random, like here's a cool detail about these guys. It's meant to say like they started actually developing livestock and ranches and all of that, partly through this guy Jabal. Jubal, <laughs> got real creative with the names here, He started the creation of musical instruments. It says there in verse 21, he became the father of all those who play the lyre and the harp. And then Tubal-Cain, a son from his other wife, developed uh, metallurgy. He became the forger, it says in verse 22, of all instruments of bronze and iron. He might have even begun developing some kind of metal weaponry at that time. What what we're supposed to see here just through, through this description of Lamech's family is a developing world and society in this early stage of human history. Uh, If we thought the fall of humanity in Genesis 3 would turn human beings into, that that were made in God's image into mere animals, uh, we're here now reading that we'd be wrong, coming to that conclusion. Instead, humanity is seen as developing, growing, and to a degree, filling the earth and subduing it. It's like God is there, you know, waiting wanting a broken humanity to turn and pursue him, but still, he's allowing them to flourish. He's allowing them to be blessed. He's allowing them to do uh, their human thing. Okay, so Lamech, at one point, verse 23, said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. Okay, this is odd. 
just kind of pops in there. It's hard to know exactly what occurred here. There's some details that we can figure out. Apparently, he killed a man. Okay? And apparently, he did it because the man wounded him. All right? So he seems to be declaring this is self-defense. And though some people see this as another example of like an outlaw spread of evil, it seems like Lamech's words actually are the first instance of legal justice. And it kind of makes sense because we just saw how his sons instituted all these different uh, trades and uh, industries. Now here, Lamech is appealing to some sense of law. Now the Mosaic Law, which was written many years after this, obviously, uh, would actually provide cities of refuge for people who killed someone in self-defense. They could run to a city of refuge where they'd be protected until they were able to have a formal trial and defend themselves. Now, Lamech's plea with his wives here might have been like an, an early attempt at that form of legal protection. But also, notice how Lamech, he was able to draw on Cain's life as an excuse for his own actions. You know, he says, if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy uh, sevenfold. So I'm not going to make too much out of this, but I'll just say it like this. We should really, really long to live lives that give no excuse for other people to enter into sin or brokenness. It seems like that's what was happening here. Lamech is looking at Cain saying, look how he got away with it. I'm going to get away with it myself as well. Don't let your life be an excuse for other people's sin. Okay, but this is it. This is the end of the record of Cain's line. The story just ends. He's followed no further. And you got to get used to this as we go through the book of Genesis because we're going to, from time to time, confront a character, follow them for a little while, and then once it's determined that their family line will not produce the Messiah, you get a little record of their family tree, and then it's over, and the story moves on to the family line that will produce the Messiah. So in short, Cain's line would not give us Jesus, so we leave Cain's story. We pick it up in verse 25, and it says, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son, and called his name Seth, for she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Okay, so this is the record of Adam and Eve having another son. They name him Seth. Uh, his name might mean something like seat or new beginning or foundation or, get this, buttocks. <laughs> it's like just the, the, the bottom, the, the base, the foundation. Okay, it's clear that Eve felt that there was something special about Seth. That's why she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. I think this is beautiful because, to me, it demonstrates the clear hope that Eve still had. God said her seed would be in conflict with the serpent. She remembered the garden. She could recall that state of sinless perfection. She knew she couldn't go backwards. She couldn't do anything to reverse the curse, but she was looking forward to what God was going to do. She was, in a sense, forgetting what had come before, 
and moving on, pressing on. And she thought perhaps that Seth would be the one who would crush the serpent's head. Or maybe that his descendants would, would be one of the ones who would bring the answer. Either way, there was hope in Eve's heart. I love that. But this hope, it seems, created an environment where it says in verse 26 that this was the beginning of the time that people began to call upon the name of the Lord. In other words, hope led to worship. You know, Yahweh began to receive honor and praise. And it doesn't tell us how they began to worship, you know, what, what, what this looked like. But somehow during Seth's time, people began uh, to worship. But the emphasis that the author's making, or Moses is making, is not so much on the fact that they worship, but on the backdrop of their worship. You see, the backdrop of their worship was this. Satan was on the move. He was stealing and killing and destroying. There's death, murder, polygamy. All this stuff is happening. He was doing his worst to disrupt and dismantle humanity. And when you're following Cain's story, it seemed like everything was happening according to Satan's plan. There's all this murder and division, flourishing societies that have God at the, you know, banished from them. They're all just humming along. But in the midst, there's this remnant, a remnant of people worshiping the Lord. And the, the, the people who read this for the first time, and us as well, we should learn and remember a valuable lesson. God always has a remnant. We're going to see this over and over again through the book of Genesis and all of Scripture. God has a remnant. His plans cannot be thwarted. He will always raise up a godly generation, no matter how dark the days. And these were dark days that they were living in. God is on the move. He's working to renew and restore all things. Okay, so, so that's our introduction to the line of Seth. All right, so chapter 5 takes us into a different section. It says in verse 1, and this is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. Okay, notice that here in verse 1 of chapter 5, we're moving to a new book. That's why it says in verse 1, this is the book of the generations of Adam. Uh, it's a genealogy, like I said earlier, of 10 generations. Okay, genealogies are often tedious to handle, but this one's highly instructive. And one of the first things we have to note is that creation is kind of retold at the beginning of it. Did you see that there in verse 1? He talks about when God created man. Uh, he made them in the likeness of God, male and female. He created them. And then we're reminded how God blessed and named them when they were created. This is, like a, this is a really important statement at this particular moment in the text. Cain rebelled against God, and it hurt. Lamech lived his own way, and pain resulted. Cain's whole line expressed the toil and hardship of living under the curse. But now we see that it's still possible to be blessed by God. One could walk with God and enjoy his kindness upon their lives. It's kind of like when you read Cain's story, you're left wondering, hey, the blessing that they were under there in the Garden of Eden, is there any semblance of that for us still as a species? And after reading chapter 4, you might say, I don't know that there is. 
But chapter 5, the beginning of it, is meant to help us understand, no, you can walk with God and live under his blessing even though we live in times of the curse. This helps us understand that though the world is fallen, fallen and humanity is depraved, there is still hope of living under God's blessing. And of course, for us in Christ, what does the Bible say? Ephesians 1 verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Okay, let's go on and start reading this genealogy. We're not going to get too in-depth on it at all. It says in verse 3, When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness, after his image, and named him Seth. So we've already seen Seth's birth. The days of Adam, after he fathered Seth, were 800 years. And he had other sons and daughters, thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. Okay, that's a long time, (laughs) 930 years. One of the things I always flash through in my mind is like, you know, we celebrate anniversaries and marriages. I think about how many hundreds of years Adam and Eve were married to each other. I mean, that's just a long time. Okay, so this shocks modern readers, right? We read 930 years, and uh, it's just incredible to us. You know, what's going on here? And even though we know this is before the flood, and, and uh, you know, it still strikes us as, as very long. So how are we supposed to take these massive numbers that we're going to read? Because the, the numbers are going to be like this all throughout this genealogy. Are they myths? You know, there are Babylonian legends that said that some of their previous kings reigned for thousands of years each. You know, it's obviously a legend. It's not true. So is this a, is this a legendary kind of accounting? Are they symbolic numbers? You know, that the first readers, the people of Israel, would have understood. You know, they read the number 930. It means something else to them than to us. Are they, are they months? You know, rather than years, that they just not figured out how to tell time like we can today, and they just had a different accounting system. There have been a lot of attempts to account for these numbers in some other way, but to me, they all come up short. It seems like we're meant to take these numbers as accurate representations of life in the pre-flood or antediluvian world. And I think there's decent reasons to believe that conditions at that time would have allowed for a much longer lifespan. First of all, a gradual penetration of sin and death into the species. You know, Adam and Eve weren't created to die. They ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and death entered in, but they weren't made to die, so perhaps this is indicative of a gradual penetration of death into humanity. And then you also have the perfect health of Adam and Eve. It took generations to decay as they pass it down to their offspring, and then some have suggested that the expanse that we saw in Genesis chapter 1 that separated the waters above from the waters below might have created a totally different habitat on earth then than we're used to today, which might have allowed them to live uh, even longer and be much healthier. But it just seems we're to accept it, that they lived these incredibly long lives. Okay, But then at the end of 930 years, it says he died. Okay, He's blessed by God. The text records that. Uh, But even after many years, he died. 
You see, the Bible teaches, Romans 6, verse 23, that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And Adam had sin, and death was the result. Okay, the phrase, and he died, is going to be the, the repeated refrain of this chapter. If you, if you, if you were to like wonder what phrase is repeated, this is the death chapter, okay? It's just over and over again, and he died. God is blessing, but ultimately the curse is having its way with people. So let's go on and read. It says in verse 6, then, when Seth had lived 100, 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he fathered Kenan 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. Kenan lived after he fathered Mahalalel 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and you know what happens next, and he died. When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, verse 15, he fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years. So he died a little bit earlier than everybody else. Young guy, 895, and he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. You can just imagine with the death rate so slow, taking so long for people to die, and these people having many sons and daughters, you'd have to assume that uh, the length of time that they'd be able to bear children would be much longer if they were healthy for this long in life. So you just imagine the earth's population during all of this is exploding. Okay, verse 21, when Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Okay, this is meant to stand out to the reader. Like, what? I was waiting for a, and he died. But Enoch does not, it say, died. He walked with God instead, verse 24, and he was not, for God took him. Everyone else's story, like I said, ended with, and he died, but Enoch's ends with, God took him. Okay, the, the text doesn't say uh, where God took him to, uh, where Enoch went, but it seems that we're meant to understand that Enoch didn't taste death like everyone else. That he was plucked from the earth by the hand of God. And it <coughs> came after 300 years of walking with God. I love the way that it's recorded. It says that he, after 65 years, became a dad, and then he started walking with God. I think <laughs> this is the experience of many men. <coughs> I have to get my act together. But he walked with God. You know, to walk with God, it speaks of incredible diligence. I mean, just imagine it. 300 years of his life. 300 years. This was not a, a phase for Enoch. Just a, a 
brief foray into spiritual stuff. Like, I'll give God a try for a little while. No, for him, God existed, and the reward of walking with God made his walk real and enduring. God was not something or someone to try, but someone to enjoy for a very long time. And he, he gave God his days, but he gave God his decades. Just walk with the Lord for a long time. But, but to walk with God also speaks of a steady and consistent voyage. You know, if you run anywhere, you get tired very quickly. But you can walk for a very long time without getting too fatigued. Your body just isn't taxed as severely from walking as it is when running. And Enoch, he went on that long and daily walk with Jesus. To, to me, a walk just speaks of an unspectacular relationship with God. And I love that. Because too often, I think we want the spectacular whenever we meet with God. But if you're going to walk with God for decades, I'm sad to say you're not going to have centuries, at least here on this earth, like these people did. But if you walk with God for decades... The life-shaking stuff with God, the earth-shattering stuff with God, it really shouldn't happen all that often. You know, if it does, that's a schizophrenic kind of life. You know, like every day, a massive revelation. No, that's not the thing. You know, God will do that in your life from time to time. But that steady, constant, enduring walk, that's what Enoch had. I don't know about you, but I just couldn't handle a revolutionary, life-altering word from God every day. I just couldn't do it. <laughs> I need that constant encouragement to keep moving in the direction that he's given my life. Okay, so Enoch walked with God, and the Lord took him to be with himself. Okay, it says, though, of his son, the, the, the tale picks back up in verse 25. It says, when Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived, after he fathered Lamech, 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. Okay, this is the longest of anyone in Adam's line, the longest recorded life in the Bible, 969 years. So tuck that one away for your Bible trivia. Methuselah, the longest life, 969 years. And his placement here is fascinating because he was born before Adam died. And he lived until after Noah's birth. You know, if you patch all these lines together and overlap them, you know, when they were born and all of that, it's not hard to do. So, <clears throat> and then Noah, he lived all the way to the time of Terah, who was Abraham's father. So it's not that difficult to see how the oral traditions that would have started with Adam and were then shared with this line, how they could have been passed down from generation to generation. Methuselah could have known Adam and also have known Noah and have passed down in real short order the, the, the truths that Adam would have communicated. Okay, it says in verse 28, When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other 
sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. Okay, so Lamech has a son, Noah. We'll, we'll talk about him uh, next time we're in Genesis uh, and see his story. But Lamech said about Noah, out of the ground that the Lord God has has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Now, now catch this for a second. In both of the genealogies that we just went through tonight, chapter 4, Cain, chapter 5, Seth's, in both of these genealogies, there's only one person that speaks in each genealogy. And both of them are named Lamech. In Cain's, it's a wicked guy, you know, talking about I killed somebody, but I was justified because they struck me first kind of thing. But in Adam's line, or in Seth's line, a righteous Lamech prays for relief. In a sense, the first Lamech was like making fun of or taunting the curse, while the second Lamech longed for relief from the curse that he believed was there on the earth at at the time. And he names him Noah, hoping for comfort, which might make you think that Noah's name meant comfort or means comfort, but it doesn't. His name just sounds similar to the Hebrew word for comfort. So it's like Moses picked up on the similar sound of Noah and the Hebrew word for comfort and declared Lamech to be a man of hope. He wanted reprieve. He's like, we need a break. After all this death and decay, we need God to have mercy on us. We need that deliverer to come. And God would give them uh, comfort, but it would just come in a totally different form than Lamech imagined. He's like, it's going to come through my son. We're going to get some rest. We're going to get a reprieve. He could never have imagined that that reprieve would come through God's judgment, a flood, an ark, and a small little remnant being chosen by God and starting over as the covenant community of God. But that's exactly what his son Noah would do. He would lead to the saving, the comfort, the relief of future generations. It wasn't unrighteousness the world needed relief from. uh, And and Noah would be God's vessel to bring that relief uh, from unrighteousness. It says in verse 32, And after Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Okay, so Cain's genealogy in chapter 4 ended with the report of three sons. Remember those guys, Jabal, Jubal, and Tubal Cain? Now we get three more sons at the end of this genealogy, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And we'll look at them when we get into chapter 9 of Genesis. Now I told you I wanted to go through chapter 6, verse 8, and the reason for that is because the next book starts in verse 9. So let's just finish this book uh, by looking at the first eight verses. It says in verse 1, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old the men of renown. Okay. (laughs) There's a lot here. Okay, but before I talk about this, I should just say this. 
This is actually one of the most hotly contested, not necessarily in modern eras, but just over the course of human history, passages in all of the Bible. People have been debating verse 1 through 4 of Genesis chapter 6 for a few thousand years now. Before the church was even a thing, they were debating what's happening here in, uh, in these verses. Scholars have for a long time considered it one of the most difficult passages to interpret. That's why I'm, I'm going to invite Pastor Mike up right now to tell us all about it. No. <laughs> okay, the, the, the sticking point of the passage centers around the identity of the sons of God and the daughters of men in verse 2. Okay, the text implies that their sexual union, whoever they are, produced Nephilim, which is just another way of saying a species of giants, who were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown, in verse 4. Okay, there's a bunch of lines of interpretation, as you can imagine. But here's uh, some of the basic ones. The, the early church fathers interpreted the sons of God to be angels who came to earth and impregnated women. Okay, this view is problematic for a few reasons, but a main one because it seems to borrow from pagan mythology, uh, but also because it seems to contradict some of Jesus' teaching about the angelic realm. He said that the angels aren't given in marriage, the implication being that God did not give them the ability to procreate. Uh, Jewish rabbis, though, taught that the sons of God were human judges, and in their roles of power, they sat in the seat of sovereign God, you know, made decisions in God's place. But the problem with this view is, that the imp is the implication that something unnatural would come from that kind of sexual union. Why would, and in other words, why would an important government official having a sexual relationship with a woman mean that they had giants as children? It just seems like a weird outcome, you know, like, you're the governor, so we're going to have a giant. It just doesn't seem, doesn't make sense. Okay, eventually, a line of interpretation developed that said, the sons of God were the righteous uh, line of Seth. Perhaps you've heard this one before. It's popular in evangelical circles. The, the righteous line of Seth are the sons of God, and the daughters of man were the unrighteous line of Cain. And that these two people got together, and the, these Nephilim were produced. But again, the problem has to do with the offspring. Why would a descendant of Cain and Seth have such strange offspring? In our modern era, some critics of Scripture have said this is just the mere adoption of mythology. Lesser gods come down to earth and impregnate women, giving rise to the heroes of old, who are just additional lesser gods to be followed and revered. So, so what are we supposed to make of a passage like this? Should we, should we build these elaborate theories about the identity of the Nephilim? Should we take a hard stand on the identity of the sons of God? Does this passage even matter? Okay, for, for these questions, the context gives us some relief. It helps us understand what, what's trying to be communicated to us. Remember, we're still in the book of the generations of Adam that started in chapter 5, verse 1. And what do we find all throughout the book of the generations of Adam? Death. Remember? And he died. Death spread from Adam to everybody. 
That's what has come before this section, death. Okay, what comes after this section? That's what I mean by context, what came before, what came after. What comes after this section? The flood. More death. Why? Why more death? Because, as we're going to see in a moment, the wickedness of man was great on the earth. Okay, so what does the context show us? The context shows us that everyone died, everyone was impacted by sin, and everyone gave in to sin. Okay, because of that, it seems to me, and this still is a wild view, but the best view that I've seen, that, that, I, that satisfies me at least to a degree, is that the sons of God it doesn't indicate that they're godly, because in a second we're going to see there was nobody godly except Noah. So I don't think it indicates that they're godly. Uh, but I think that there's something more than just mere men at play with the sons of God. I don't think that they're fallen angels. I don't think that they're demons. But Ezekiel and Daniel both talk to us about demonic princes who are behind many of the great kings and rulers of the earth. So maybe what's happening here is that we're getting a glimpse into powerful figures, men, who in their pursuit of ungodliness went all the way to the extreme of opening up their minds, souls, and bodies to the demonic realm and became inhabitants of fallen angels or demonic spirits who were looking for bodies to inhabit. And then somehow, in their sexual drive and urge, what was produced was this odd species, the Nephilim. Uh, New Testament verses that might point towards this would come from places like Jude verse 6, which singles out a specific type of angel who were specifically judged because they left their proper dwelling place. And so perhaps that's what's happening uh, here. Uh, but at the end of the day, I don't really know exactly what is happening here. That's just the best interpretation that I've seen. But what I do know is that the point is clear. No one, no giant, no son of God, no daughter of woman, no one escapes sin. No one escaped death. Its terrible effects were felt by everyone on the earth. And this was important for the original Israelite leader, readers. Remember what they were uh, exposed to. They were told when they were slaves in Egypt that the pharaohs were godmen on earth. That's what they were told. And now they've seen, as they're hearing the book of Genesis, that Pharaoh has suffered that pharaoh is subservient to the sovereign god and here they're able to look back in history and see as powerful as people became or as gigantic as they became they still could not defeat death they could not defeat god's judgment okay, as a response to all this sin god said in verse three my spirit shall not abide in man forever for he is flesh his days shall be 120 years you see that there in verse three the question is, what does that mean? What does it mean when God says uh, his days shall be 120 years? Some people have thought that this was God's way of limiting the lifespans of human beings. And it kind of makes a little bit of sense, doesn't it? You know, it's like, 
I'm letting them live a really long amount of time, and they're not getting any better during the long lives that they live. They're just getting worse and worse and worse. So long lifespans weren't leading to greater righteousness, but to greater evil. So maybe shorter lifespans would curtail wickedness a little bit. But don't you think, as we look around our world, we're living proof that that's not true. (laughs) We don't need long lifespans to do great evil. We just need a heartbeat. (laughs) So I don't know that that's what was happening here. I think that God was giving an indication of when his judgment would come. That he'd extend mercy for another 120 years from this point, and then he would bring the discipline of the flood upon the earth. Okay, before we read our last handful of verses, uh, we should note how their sin occurred. The sons of God saw the daughters of man, verse 2, that they were attractive and took as their wives any that they chose. Uh, This is just meant to be an echo of Adam and Eve's original sin, to see and to take, uh, rather than to exert self-control. Okay, verse 5 to 8, to wrap it up tonight, it says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. A lot of times people have a hard time breaking through some of the words in that paragraph I just read to you to see the empathy and pain that God is experiencing. That's what's meant to be communicated. He sees the wickedness, verse 5. He knows everyone's thoughts, that they're only evil. He felt regret. He's sorry. It's like Moses wants us to see God's attitude about sin. It hurts him. It breaks his heart. Like I said, though, some people want to focus more on the specific words, especially the idea that God was sorry. How could an all-knowing and sinless God have regret? How could he feel sorry for his actions? But probably all that's happening is that Moses is giving us a human description of God's divine actions. It's not like God is surprised uh, by anything. He sees the end from the beginning. It's not that he's confessing any sin or apologizing in any way. No, all the blame is firmly fixed on mankind's shoulders, but that doesn't mean that God's unfeeling. He is. And Moses was trying to express that. I think this is good for us to internalize, that sin, it hurts the heart of God. He's our good father, and and he wants us to walk with him and to live a, a righteous life. When God saw all that wickedness, though, after years of extending mercy and grace, especially with long lifespans, he finally had to act. One scholar I read interprets this as the balancing of the scales and that God's scales were weighted down with mercy and it was time for him to act with justice. And so he's sorry. He's sorry that the scales are imbalanced and that he needs to fix that balance. So he said, verse 7, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. And we're going to talk about this next time we're in Genesis. But here we learn that in the midst of God's decision to judge, Noah, verse 8, found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Before he built an ark, 
before he became a preacher of righteousness, before he did anything for God, he just found favor, found grace in the eyes of the Lord. All of mankind was under God's judgment, but Noah would receive God's grace. Okay, we're going to think about Noah, like I said, next time we're together. But let's close by thinking of the ancient Israelites' understanding of this passage. They were going into a land filled with giants. They had come from a land filled with false gods. The, the preeminent one being a man, Pharaoh, who claimed to be divine. And in this passage, they learned that no one could stand in the presence of the righteous God in his judgment. All false gods would be judged. All men would be judged. No giant in their future would stand. Only one person stood. The elect, chosen, favored, graced man of God would go forward. And his name was Noah. And I think they were meant to see themselves in Noah. The giants and the false gods would not stand. Israel, though, would win victories, not by their own merit, because of who they were, but because God had graced them and favored them. They were elected and loved. And I think in a sense, as we wrap this up tonight, we should see the same thing. In Jesus, we are chosen, adopted, loved, and elected by him. He's graced us. It's our new position. And so we should be like little Noah's, running victoriously in the favor that he has decided to impart.